the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. The good, the bad, and the Boucherian. And folks, you're listening to the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. Before I could tell them and identify ourselves, someone opened fire on me. And I honestly don't know how someone missed me, my big frame, uh, at you know, 10 meters. Uh, so that was f- fairly much a very lucky escape for me. Uh, part of the training it transforms you and adjusts you adequately to become a soldier, but it doesn't step you down. And anything that you get to experience, you know, you see death, you take lives, you get shot, uh, or things like that. Or even in training, you see quite a lot. I mean, seeing someone today, Billy, and, and you're together and you're laughing and you're telling half-hearted jokes to keep uh, going, even in the battlefield. And then the next, this guy is is minced meat, or the next, he's blown into pieces, or next, um, it's you who's trying to piece together what used to be their body, and, and some of it is outside their real system. It, it's crazy. It's not going to leave your mental wiring the same, okay? You're exposed mm-hmm. to this over and over. You're not going to be left the same. You are detached from your family for, for the longest. You're not going to be left the same. Uh, I suffered from PTSD. Yeah. So mental illnesses uh, can happen to even the strongest. You know, your brain is not going to obey the fact that your body is absolutely filled, fit, and you're you know, a barrel-chested guy, eight feet tall, and you wear a size 50 shoe. It's your boy Billy Bakati with another episode. Hope you guys are keeping well, keeping safe amidst the pandemic and things are going well on your side as they are on mine. Today in studio is Baron Adera X, Kenya Special Forces officer, a security expert, and also a blogger. And as he currently writes his book, The Making of a Super Soldier, we want to hear what was and how was his life while serving the military? What were the parts that led him to that? What are some of the lessons he's learned, as well as touch a bit on mental health as you know uh some of the cadets suffer from ptsd and other stress related disorders as well as traumatic brain injury edi so i want to hear his perspective and his experiences in all this yeah so we just want to hear the story of the man the story of panther the story of mr byron adera and Mm -hmm. what how his life has been and what Mm -hmm. path is taken that led him to where he is right now how was life at the military? What are some of the lessons you learned while at the military that you still apply to date? Tell us about Little Byron. Um, the Little Byron. Fine. Um, I guess uh, my life has been pretty um, e- eventful, if I may. Um, I grew up as a young man in a remote um, uh, farming, hunting, and gathering, and predominantly, uh, you know, uh, kind of really? village, yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, you know, I'm writing a book currently, you know, The Making of a Super Soldier, and uh, part of that, um, you know, came out very clearly, especially when my sisters jumped in and my elder brothers jumped in to, you know, contribute into, you know, the, the making of that super soldier that I am. And they recounted, you know, quite deeply about, um, you know, the richness of our village. Uh, basically, I think a village predominantly were made of warriors, uh, very brave men who went out of their way to do things that were heroic. And that includes 
part of which is the repelling of um you know they if you talk about the great Luo nation as it were back in the day you know it can be proverbial and biblical to some extent almost uh, like the, the the Israelites that went on their way to you know conquer you know other nations in in pursuit of the the holy land and so we we literally bordering the Nandis and as you know it it meant that um, a part of the raids that uh, were very, you know, you know, etched in the traditions, you know, the passage of rights, the Nandis would cross over to come and raid and uh, be, be, you know, cows. And and we are literally at the buffer between the, um, the the Nandis and the Luos that are, you know, living in and around what now, you know, is known as the Miwani. It was Miwani division then, so it's part of Nyando. So we are actually the, the last, last homesteads, um, you know, uh, that are buffer between now the farmlands of Miwani, the Sugar Belt, and then now the Nandis that stay you know, and live in, in and around the, the Nandi escarpment. So I, as I grew up as a young boy, I, I, I would you know see young men to slightly older men uh, that were you know even even doing all, all you call, what you call the the, the night vigils. Uh, they called it Rutek, to basically uh, you know go out in the night along uh, some corridors that they, they expected the raiders to you know come through in 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 in, in the during the raids and 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 hold what now in the army life they'd call ambushes you know a force lying in wait and uh, trying to pull a fast one on unsuspecting enemy so i saw that happen and um the farming bit is about um you know the the area was predominantly you know as you know the the famous syricalis idea <laughs> Uh, so we had uh, the rice belts, you know, the swamp plants, and we had, um, you know, during season, you'd have people, you know, plant maize, you know, um, cassava. We, I saw, I saw, you know, cotton. Uh, that I think some of our kids now wouldn't even know and marry with, you know, and that the idea of seeing, you know, clothes that are made of cotton and that it comes out of your yeah, plant for, for 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 that matter. So I saw that happen quite a bit, and of course the hunting and gathering. I would see younger, you know, mid middle aged, you know, young men who are my cousins and distant cousins for that matter go out to hunt, uh, you know, game, uh, you know, uh, rabbits, uh, hares as you call hares as you call them, antelopes, elands. Uh, what hogs? I saw quite a bit of that. So uh, it was quite an eventful, you know, kind of um, growth as a young man in such kind of village. And of course, the primary business for you as as kids then it meant that we'd go to school, and going to school meant that we walked long distances. You know, rather run to school because you definitely would come back for lunch. Uh, sometimes you're lucky to have uh, that plentiful, you know, there's a there was just a board and plentiful harvest, and so you have plentiful food. But sometimes, you know, as as uh, everybody has had it, uh, I mean, as part of that world, you possibly get back home and you you don't have lunch, so you got to run back on an empty stomach to school. So mm-hmm. that was part of my upbringing and childhood. But um, over and above that, and I think beyond that as well, is the fact that uh, my performance had been stellar since uh, childhood. I don't remember much about being in a position two in class since I started knowing about that. Uh, I started school because uh, I would I would literally follow my sister to uh, you know uh, I, I was bullied quite a bit by my my elder sister uh, between me and her were two kids that were born and died young so mom mom loved me more than every other child you know because of those losses so my sister was a, a tad jealous of me and so 
uh, she'd bully me. So ideally, when I was about uh, three and a half, four years, she'd literally be spent in the same bed, you know, rather the same, um, you, you, we called them par back in the day. So just a few clothes thrown over a mat, you know, they, they, that was made of the reeds, you know, the papyrus reeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she'd wake up with all the blankets and everything, you know, try to really disrupt your sleep. So, I, you know, for me, the opportunity cost was, you know, if uh, I got to really evade all this suffering then why not just cooperate and wake up with nancy and go to school with her so that's how i started schooling like literally <laughs> so i would uh-huh. I'd follow her to wherever and at some point she'd dump me at by some you know by the wayside and i'd find my way to some um uh, kindergarten school they called bondo it was called bondo nursery school so the teacher there was a very close friend of mom's and so she kept me in class you know and after performing really well in one term which was actually ideally second term she decided oh you know he needs to start you know going going to school and so as luck would have it as well this teacher was promoted to some untrained teacher role and she found her way into the nearest primary school which was called Wanangwe so I followed her, you know, and I was in class one uh, by third term in the same year. I started like, you know, going to school. So I started schooling when I was about four, four, and three, four, three and a half towards four years. Um, and so I skipped uh, nursery, I probably skipped first term, second term of class one. And so that was me. So the following year, she decides, oh, this guy is actually doing well. So why not, you know, just buy him uniforms and so that was my mom allowing me to start schooling now officially. And um, I was in class two proper the following year. And uh, I remember, you know, from then henceforth, I was, I think, position top 10. Then by term two, I was top two, top three. And, you know, I just picked on from, you know, class three, I was number one, one, all the way in the same school, all the way to class four, uh, five or when I we I left and transferred with my sister to a different school where I sat my KCP. Yeah, so basically, um, after this teacher transferred from uh, you know uh, our kindergarten or you could call it nursery school as we called it then, I literally followed her to where she went for her you know untrained teacher kind of uh, work and she transferred to the nearest primary school. So I followed her on to that primary school. And that's mm-hmm. how I found the way in the same year from a kindergarten or nursery school, then same year, you know, uh, second term, I mean, that was third term, literally, I was in primary school. So second term, I was in nursery school, spent a time in a nursery school, then the next time this teacher tried. Yeah, so that was my schooling. And I remember basically from primary school, dad would buy in every kind of newspapers. Mm-hmm. Because I was uh, very close to dad as well, then uh, yeah, I would dad would uh, tell stories. Mom was a very good storyteller too, but dad would tell stories out of the newspapers. I was curious, so I remember from class three, you know, um, I'd been position one in my class all through, and uh, whenever my sister Nancy would uh, have, you know, I know that now it was art and craft, uh, you know, projects for drawing and all, I would assist her, and and basically all our friends too, I would draw. So I picked up drawing which I was really cool at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember by class three, I'd known all the years of independence of African, you know, countries and, you know, plus their presidents or the first president or the existing presidents then. So I'd remember mm-hmm. you know, a particular teacher, you know, who nicknamed me Byron Jojiadis. I, I later came to know he was a famed criminal lawyer. 
Uh, would hold my hands and take me to class seven. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, to, to class seven, and you know where my sister was by then, and and you know I'm I'm finding a whole the whole classroom is 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 basically on their belly, like uh, you know they they're being caned uh, for having wronged an answer in GHC, you know, or or something or history. So I would be asked, you know, I don't know what's the president, who's the what's the what's the year year of independence of say, South Africa, and I would I would shout it out. Um, what's the name of the president of you know Angola? Mm-hmm. And I would say Eduardo dos Santos or something, you know, or Paul, Paul Cameroon, you know, Paul Beer. And I would basically I would just shout the names, you know, over and over. So that was quite an intrigue, and the whole school became very famous because of me back back in the day. Um, so uh, sad for them, I didn't graduate from the same school. By the time uh, my sister was sitting at KCPE, she transferred to a different school. So I also transferred with her. And that's where basically I also sat my KCSE past, um, you know, well, and basically went to secondary school, uh, which was very eventful as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit yeah. about that. It's really that in secondary school is when you're told to choose what career choice you want and all of that. Now, even listening to your story, that you're yeah. a very smart lad, as well yeah. as you're a jack of all trades. And I know yeah. for jack of all trades, it's very hard to actually settle on one thing and say, this is what mm-hmm. I want to do because there's so many options in the world and you'd want to explore your creative mind in all these fields. So how yeah. was that for you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, being a jack of all trades um, and, and, and you know, the well-worn saying that goes, uh, you know, a jack of all trades, a master of none uh, is, is perhaps for the lazy fox. Um, so in my case, I think a jack of all trades to me means, and, and it defined pretty well in my, you know, the, the life that I lived much, much later on, you know, joining the ranks of the special forces and, being a pioneer for this country, where every single man uh, that's within that uh, you know smallest community of every humans uh, on the globe is a, is a is a master of all. You know, jack of all trades, a master of all, because they're exposed to so many disciplines, so many things. One minute you're this, one minute you're expected to be another, and all is expected of you is to deliver excellence or so to feed ex- excellence from one point to another in terms of missions. And if mm-hmm. it's you're exposed to trainings as well. You're expected to be excellent in all of those disciplines, you know. So, uh, and and that is that is a challenge, especially when you are talking about you know schooling and where you expect people to channel you around, you know, one particular area of expertise. So you realize if you're multi-talented, uh, it's possible to actually have your hand uh, across the you know all the disciplines or all the talents and make them you know um, flourish just as like any other. And I think that's a, a strong learning lesson to anyone that feels that um, they're a bit all over the place. Being all over the place is a good place to find yourself still. Uh, and when people tell you to focus, focus to me sometimes means uh, being very, you know, sorry, tunnel visioned, and which sometimes may not be beneficial for people whose minds are racing and who have uh, talents that they can pretty much. And I think it's, it's uh, as you say, diversification is a good thing, even in business. It's okay because it did promise survival. If, uh, like in my case, um, you know, I was a fine artist and I would draw, I, I did draw, uh, you know, I was the chief cartoonist for my cadet, uh, uh, you know, magazine. We call it the, we call it the Reconnoiter by 2006 when we were graduating from cadet college. And so that was my contribution. You know, I just remembered like, wow, I can contribute, you know, fairly here. But I didn't pursue fine arts in, say, secondary school. My school was not offering that. Uh, the option was drawing and design. Uh, that was Ranjiko, the famed Ranjiko and the famous Ranjiko High School then. Uh, so I didn't choose, I didn't draw, I didn't go into drawing and design. So 
I dropped that. But uh, of course, again, in campus, at completely different pursuit altogether that was not aligned. But I excelled. I scored my ace, uh, you know, in, in, in campus. The three years I was in campus before I joined uh, the cadet college. So again, everything that is put into you as a talent, and, and I think this is very resoundingly important, um, is something that you can pretty much pursue. So have the courage to pursue them because one day, you know, you you you, you may never know. One day it may come knocking on your doorstep to contribute uh, favorably uh, in, a, in a vision, in, a, in a, a particular mission or something, or a vision that is great and people are gelling around. And it, it may come to pass as something that's, um, you know, etched in history as, you know, a contribution you made to mankind. I'm sure the cadet magazine that we did put together, which was actually a first for our cadet in Tech 33, uh, you know, marked, um, you know, an important and formed up an important precedence for the follow-on cadet classes that tried to also put together magazines. And I know if someone turned the pages, they'd find my stories that were written therein. And they'd find interesting cartoons that I did uh, put together because mm. uh, of that part, part of my life, uh, which which was, um, you know, and a talent that was given to me by, you know, the almighty that is, uh, you know, drawing. So it, it's important. And I think uh, going back to your question, it's upon, you know, just ourselves as well, as I said, that um, have the greatest responsibility to pursue our talents and another the people that are in charge of us, you know, at the tender ages where we have parents and guardians and they're looking at you and they say, hey, man, you need to focus. You can't pass through all these things. It's possible. It's best to basically look out for those things and encourage, you know, as and when people settle on a pursuit and, uh, you know, and, and they should be allowed the, the latitude to make informed choices and guided for that matter. But do not limit people and say, hey, hey, we think art is not profitable. Oh, hey, you know, you don't need to pass through this, you know, focus on books alone. Uh, we are in this day and age where, you know, uh, extracurriculum activities would be very important. Arts have earned people here, they're, they're multi-millionaires or billionaires in dollar terms who've just pursued arts, you know, basically the visual arts, if it's other forms of arts, and they've made a living out of them. So I think talents in any form, shape, and presentation are very important. All we have to do is to pursue them uh, to the brim. Mm-hmm. Mm. So at what point in your life did you realize that you wanted to serve your country? Because a lot of guys, I realized, are very detached, especially due to the corruption that we keep on seeing in the country. So a lot of guys would rather mm. not serve their country. So for you, at what point did you know, I really, because for you, even being on the military is yeah. dedicating your life, literally, mm. that you yeah. can even die on the line. So for yeah. you, at what point did you know that this is something I'd want to pursue? Now that you've talked about being a cadet and so for the listeners perhaps they don't know that mm. side so please tell us about all of that well uh interestingly uh, uh the army and myself found each other uh, i don't know which one first but we did um i love soldiering mm-hmm. with all my <laughs> life um I'm, I'm a born warrior i guess uh started from the tender age um, i'm told by my aunties whenever mom visited uh, home you know, their place with me and I was a kid. Uh, I was born big bodied, so I was bigger than my age mates. I would literally shove kids out of my way as I crawled to, you know, from point A to point B and kids would be wailing <laughs> and crying and their mothers, their mothers would be very pissed off at my mother. And, and you know, there were no aids like telephones back in the day. So you'd know who's going to visit and who they're going to visit with, you know. So when I was young and mom was very close to me because of that. She told you that the, the kids that she'd lost that died young between myself and my, my elder sister. 
you know, took it. And interesting, like, and a, and, and a name, you know, a more Owiti. Uh, traditionally, going with the Luo culture is a guy who's been thrown away. So there's a, a very elaborate, um, customary, uh, you know, and traditional practice that gets to earn you that name. So away from that story, um, I I got to know and I was told, you know, I was growing up and people would say, hey, man, you, you're impossibly strong in one way or another. You, so I, I I got to channel myself towards towards that and I got to really lean towards, you know, the warrior tradition. Uh, back in the day, of course, my my village, the Bondo, Bondo guys are known to be, not Bondo, you know, but Bondo, that's within, you know, Mimani, who are known warriors, you know, the, the clans around us uh, knew that. So uh, to the point where now I made a definitive, uh, you know, choice to join and to serve the country was when I was pretty much bored with the course I was pursuing in campus. So uh, when Cadet came calling, I said, you know, why not? And um, as I, I'm telling the story in my book, um, you know, which which uh, would be very interesting for people to pick off the shelves when it uh, gets launched next year, hopefully by February, March, you know, the making of a super soldier. Uh, I made that decision because uh, purely much, I was also a movie guy. So as a kid, I'd watch those movies and I was very curious about, uh, you know, the kind of commando, special forces kind of stuff. You know, the Delta Force the, was the closest then. And I wanted to be one of those, you know, special breed of warriors, sneaky, deadly, and they could pretty much, uh, <laughs> be, you know, they, they had uh, an aura around them and, and you know, walked uh, barrel-chested like they had a, a 10-inch chest, you know, and, and, and you know, <laughs> towering giants and things like that. So I thought I could. I could be one of those guys. You know, I just didn't know how. So when, um, you know, the boredom in campus got to the better, you know, uh, of me, got better of me, I said, uh, you know, why not? So I did an application. Um, I had a, a bit of a chat with um, an uncle, distant uncle then was, um, you know, a major at the Kawa Barracks uh, back in the day. And he did uh, give me quite um, an encouragement and said, man, you know, with, with your body and with your strength, perhaps this is the best shot you can, uh, you know, you, you know, can shake a finger at. So made an application. Uh, they took me. Um, I was shortlisted, I remember, among about, you know, 450 or something. And then, of course, called into the infamous, um, you know, Mil Cadet General Service Officer Cadet interview. Uh, little did they know that uh, that was not going to be an easy breeze through an interview, which everybody, I think quite a number of us thought is sitting before someone and just being asked a few questions and told, hey, this is your office, a uh, bit of training, and you are shaped into something in the form of a military commander to take care of the, the bits and pieces of war fighting. That was a shocker. So, uh, but I mean, I breezed through cadet training, which is really, you know, tough for Byron. But, it's not yes. fair that you won't you'll call it infamous and not tell us what it involved. Now for all of us who thought it was a formal interview, tell us what a bit about what it actually involved. Yeah, it's it's a shock, man. The shock action. Uh, you know, it it it's really it's really interesting how people get to view uh, and it's I think it's better be kept that way as well by design. So when you apply to join the ranks of cadet, right now it's a bit different. Everybody's uh, being handled at the, you know, the divisional levels or the district levels as they were, uh, you know, right where your home area is. Um, and you're being selected. You put through your paces, uh, aptitudes and all. That that for us was different. So you applied, no one knew your face, no one knew you. So you just 
you know, put together a, a cover letter and you add your certificates and things like that. So the, I think backstage, they go through tons and tons of applications. You can imagine how many, you know, tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands of applications. And for them to funnel in and have 150 that are now shortlisted and your names are, you know, posted out, you know, on the newspaper newspapers like these are the shortlisted cadets but even then so when you report you called into the interview which ideally was is fashioned in some kind of uh, three weeks of that's packed so i remember you know rocking up in 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 a, a cream uh, suits and 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 that was us you got a number of individuals also addressed in stiff suits and uh, you know because you're going in for an interview we didn't know and so uh, trust me, for some of us, we, after the processing of certificates on the first day you rock up and your parents are told whoever you rock up with, they're told, hey, sasa mwachana now, mwachana now, they're now here in the hands of the army, jeshi tafanya kazi yake, watakuwa processed, hapa ni kazi tu imeanza. You know, and it, the, the grim reality is that you are told to sit in some lines. So for back in the day, it was what wanyanza hapa, rift valleys of the provinces as they were then. And you're literally sitting on, you know, the floor. So, and you are in a, you know, a six-piece, you know, and sharp uh, suit, you know, uh, sharp, 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 you're sharp looking, literally. Uh, and and someone says, Kaini hapa chini watu wanyanza, watu wa brief valley, watu wa coast. So it's crazy. And, and that's the first shock of the day. So you are inching forward because the line ends up at some tent where the people are sat and reviewing your papers, having a look at whether they've, your application or I mean your calling letter is a fake from River Road or you basically answer to the call, you're shortlisted, you know, genuinely on the papers. And then so after that processing be the second shock is you're told, hey, there's gonna be a run. So people rain in suits, uh, my friend. Mm -hmm. I, I you get to a place and you you know you are you discover there are people have left coats and people have their trousers on the road. It's a 10 kilometer kind of run. And, and you're told every event here is a gradable event. And so you risk getting dropped just because of you know, an event like that. So it's, it's a, a do or die kind of stuff. So we rain our hearts out. You know, literally you are breathing blood. You know, like, what's going on here? People running naked back to the camp or something. <laughs> you know, you find <laughs> shoes, nice shoes. You know, people have left their shoes because I mean, you you gotta be light. Eh? If if this is gonna be what's uh, gonna define whether you stay in here or you rock out, and they make it clear to you at the end of the day, look, your left, you clear, right? Chances are only one of you is going to remain, and it was the truth. At the end of the three week, which was packed with so much activities, there's a lot of aptitudes. You are doing exams in a ninety. Um, question mathematics exam and you're doing that in 30 minutes time is short and it's a time event and they tell you stop stop uh you go into a physics exam and it's you know you some people drop physics by form two and they, they all they want to test here is character you know the the daring are you are you the guy who's not gonna give up and say hey i'm not used to that you are you know formed up in some groups and you're told hey play netball again is that other team and the instructors are swarming and they're pretty much watching out for those character traits that are going to be definitive, you know, defining a military officer, someone who can now be fashioned through training to become a military officer. So they are not interested in whether you are, you are winning against the other team. 
they're looking out for someone who, who's just going to give up and say, hey, I'm a man here. How am I going to play netball? I don't even know the rules, you know? So it's a lot of things that uh, basically bring out in sharp light, by the way. There's those uh, character traits that they'd want to see in a guy who can be fashioned into, you know, a semblance of a military officer. So that raw material that uh, is, is a breed apart that can now, you know, be used as a raw material to be transformed from that raw civilian into a military officer, as they say on the final day of, of, of graduation, that we, you know, the, the training took them through some very grueling, um, you know, activities. Uh, and the first bit of it was to transform them from a raw civilian into a military officer. Trust me, uh, that that is a very resoundingly, you know, um, valid statement because what the training does is basically transforms you from that raw civilian, as they say, into a semblance of a military officer or a soldier for that matter, at the basic level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for someone, for you, what was one lesson that was really mm-hmm. outstanding now that as a civilian, like for me, what are some of the things that I clearly don't do or see mm-hmm that yeah. you learned in that process that you now actively practice now that mm-hmm. you're out of that system. And mm-hmm. two, is the discipline yeah. aspect of it. I know that to be in the military, they, as you've said, the whole process, how rigorous it is, yeah. how disciplined you have to be. As Elit yeah. uh, Kipchoge would say, only the discipline are really free. So mm-hmm. how was that? You guys have to wake up at extreme times in the morning, sleep very yeah. late, and do all yeah. that. Please take us a bit into that aspect. Well, okay. The military college, right, right now they call it the KMA, uh, Kenya Military Academy. Back in the day, they called it um, the AFTC. So we reported to AFTC, the Armed Forces Training College, you know, that's uh, the, uh, in Lanet, Nakuru. But uh, there's not so much of a difference. Uh, the business of soldiering or production of uh, military, you know, soldiers, officers, for that matter, like, um, of course, we could talk about the recruit training school in Eldoret, is um, all the same. The lengths could be different in terms of cadet. Yes, you are taken through a more intense training and more professional development because you are now going to be the guys on top of the regular soldiers to as commanders. So there's a bit more refinement, actually a lot more refinement of, of officers or cadet training than the, the 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 training of the recruits or counterparts for that matter. Uh, but the whole um, uh, you know common denominator is the fact that they are looking at people who are going to be charged with the most serious business of arms you know and and this is where you know you are in charge of lives you know you're in charge of your, the lives of the, the soldiers or yourself your life first and the soldiers that you're leading or you are that's for the soldiers as well they're, they're in charge of their own lives and they're in charge of you know making decisions that are gonna be you know defining whether someone is gonna like someone's lives are gonna be taken or not you know for the for, for this country basically we are providing insurance for a country and its people to live protected and feeling uh, all the benefits of freedoms from external aggression. So that is really serious and it's a noble objective which the country puts on the shoulders of uh, the men and women in uniform, you know, the Kenya Defense Forces, uh, to pursue, you know, aggressively. So you are the people who are signing a blank check, for instance, and saying, hey, my life is on the line. So that is the realization that um, I think most people don't resonate with. Uh, When we answer to the call for recruitment, it is a serious call. And you're looking at that as a job opportunity. Fair enough. That's okay. But trust me, when you are in that business, you should have the realization that one day you may be called to answer to the, you know, the, the bell that's rung by this nation. And when it needs you to 
lay your life, you know, put your life on the line and say, hey, uh, if it's Somalia, if it's wherever, if it could be across the, the, the seas and the simmering oceans, uh, it could be you that the country is, is, is looking, you know, up to to take up arms and go fight so that the, benefit, the, the, the freedoms, peace, stability of this nation, and of course the developments that are going to be pursued in that environment are pursued by the nation and the benefits of individuals or the citizenry because you exist. So you got to actually have a lot of introspection. And that's what I would want for people to understand and to realize that there's a bit of introspection that you need to marry with. That if you are not just that person that's born uh, with a fair you know, share of uh, extreme discipline, mental and physical toughness to be in the right state of mind to answer to that ultimate call when it is when you are needed to, even even as a support system, because there's so much in terms of uh, what supports the fighting soldier. Everybody plays their role. They could be the signaler. They could be the guy who's so efficient in doing the logistics to support what's going to go down, you know, in the battlefield. So all these people. But ideally, at the end of the day, you could be working in very harsh environments. You could be working in very compromised, uh, you know, uh, comfort, you know, where there's absolute discomfort. But are you going to be that person? So I think those are the things that um, uh, are fairly much I would want to share with the hopeful, the guys who are hopeful and uh, answering to the call and want to get in there. Uh, and discipline is part of it. Uh, perhaps I would, uh, you know, drag in the special forces. As, as and when I commissioned in the parachute regiment, I guess some of us loved it too much. I would have paid, you know, someone, rather paid someone to be among the finest soldiers then. And after cadet, they gave it to me. The only eight of us, in my cadet class that joined the parachute regiment, which was basically the most refined uh, fighting force, uh, the army commander's reserve force by the top tip of the spear. Yeah. And from this, the, the, it's from the, you know, the army parachute reg that I basically joined, uh, I mean, pioneered and answered to the call of the generals then that chose on me to be among the first individuals to train as special forces operators for this country. And also so that man, I'm humble to have been, you know, rose to become an operations officer, uh, first squadron commander for the existing special forces. Then as it grew from a very young, tender age, which we literally witnessed. Yeah. So the call again was a, a higher call because you, you don't get any higher than the special forces for real. So uh, it's quite an honor and very humbled. But the most uh, important focus and I think the most important lessons I've had to learn uh, out of all this is uh, the power of self-discipline. The focus fairly much in the special forces is not on the groupie discipline where you're thinking um, we are a bunch of individuals going for morning run, waking each other up, supporting each other, or oh, there's the moral support, accountability partners. Trust me, the discipline right down to you as an individual. What are you doing when you are there alone? Are you prepped enough that when you're woken up in the middle of the night, you're going to rise to the occasion and conduct a mission? Because if you are not mm -hmm. fit in the special forces, you are liability to yourself and to the, your teammates. No one's going to tell you to wake up and do a thousand push-ups in the morning so you are ready to uh, rock and roll or carry so much weight. Uh, fine. So, to some extent, uh, fitness levels can, can surpass that. Uh, mm -hmm. Trust me. So if, if you know the demands of the missions that the special forces puts you through, no one's going to be ready to tell you, like, you know, do a, do do... 20, 40, 50, 100 kilometers of runs in a week when you have the opportunity to. Not at all. No one's going to tell you to keep, you know, reminding yourself of keeping yourself fresh of the the, the, the proficiency that the expertise that you've been taught in the special forces. If you go to go to the range 
test your weapon systems, clean them. It's right down to the individual. You know, and I find that very profound, and it's something that people can 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 get used to. That uh, you can you can discipline yourself by marrying with the correct character traits that you can now you know roll out in in form of good habits. And as they say, um, uh, my good friend um, Billy, is that you know just like any other disease, you know, bad habits can pretty much take root and basically you know uh, spoil your entire life, you know, and and they are the, the ones that die hard. But good habits can actually be forged as well, just like good character, and you plant them and you keep weed, you know, weeding them. So which which means you remove bad things out of them. And then you keep the garden fresh, you know, just like they say, you know, the well-worn saying, if you're a good gardener, then you're not going to stop at just loving flowers. You you will stop at where you you hate weeds. So you got to be very careful about the bad things that could crop up. It could be the bad friends. It could be, you know, procrastination. Like you start off, uh, you know, a gym program and then you fall along the way because, oh, friends keep calling you out for party, this and these parties, and they keep disrupting that. So you got to keep keep very you know, vigilant to avoid falling prey to those bad things that may disrupt your grand vision in life or your purpose in life. So uh, self-discipline is profound. You know, I can't overemphasize. And then the other bit would be flexibility in life. This, you go to treat. Life in itself is, is, is a very interesting affair. You, you could have the best of plants in life, and the best of roadmaps to get your objectives. But ideally, it's not a straight swim to the end. You know, you'd be disrupted over and over. I mean, people uh, would come along, you know, Corona comes and you had your plans, you needed to do schooling, you don't have uh, whatever it takes to now do that. And so you got to be malleable enough to change with the times and just look out for the best opportunities that you could grab to aid you to get to those objectives. So never give up. Things are going to happen. Things will not survive, as Van Mol did say, you know, Prussian general, that no, no plans or no, 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 no good plans survive the, the first contact intact, okay? Uh, if you set out and you have a very good roadmap to your objectives or your goals, trust me, there's definitely going to be things that will disrupt that. So if you didn't have the, the flexibility to adapt to the new, you know, prevailing situations and look out for the opportunity that they bring to still get to the same objectives, then you're not going to be the guy who's going to get to those objectives. Trust me, it's going to be a, a straight road. So mental tenacity is another. So just have that mental strength to keep going because trust me, as we also say, you know, whenever, whenever you're going through some uh, tough, uh, you know, situations or some pain, uh, trust me, there's someone else out there going through more pain than you and probably doing a lot better at managing it. Mm -hmm. True. As mm -hmm. they say, intelligence is the ability to adapt. And Absolutely. so, again, now being the pioneers of the special forces, yes. I know in that time, those for even to, for that, you need to come up. There was definitely some unrest in the country. So for yeah. you, what is the one, what is the scariest moment mm -hmm. while you are in the special forces? The moment that almost shook you, but didn't shake you and still journeyed on well. Mm, uh, perhaps um, I, I would say when my guard was dropped the most. Uh, so for me, that would have, would, would have to be uh, some very hairy situation when we were in a, out in the training area. Uh, in 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 um, you know the general area of a particular place called around Jeromet, uh, you know Hill. Uh, so we were all training with uh, some members of the special forces from the UK, Toto SS. You know, deadly deadly human beings for that matter, great men. 
Uh, and and uh, you know, at this point in Tanzania, I would say that they're the first, you know, they're the pioneer special forces globally. It's upon their template that every other special force in the world over fashioned their special forces, you know, training. So uh, the Navy SEALs in the U.S. borrowed from the trainings in the, you know, Total SS, you know, template, Delta um, Force, uh, talk about any other, the New Zealand Total SS as well, interestingly, also call themselves uh, Special Air Service. So uh, I'm very humbled and proud to have trained with the very finest special forces operators globally. Uh, so it has to be that incident, one incident, uh, you know, so I mean, I mean, people would feel that I'd talk about Somalia, I'd talk about the postulation violence, I'd talk about, power, you know, you know, being the first guy to uh, step foot as among the commandants wave of attackers uh, in Mount Elgon, uh, where, you know, I spent several months in that jungle. So it's not those ones. I would say those ones um, found me totally mentally prepared for what, what was going to come. But this Even one... Yes, we were the first guys in Mount Elgon. Uh, literally, I, I led the first wave of, you know, you know, combatants or, or forces for that matter in an army operation called infiltration. So we were dropped in at night and we were the people who had to walk through the enemy gaps uh, and go, you know, uh, pull security or basically go uh, get a security footprint in inside the mountain itself, the jungle where forces were going to be landing. Uh, via helicopters for the first wave of attacks. So ideally what that means is that uh, you go to have foot on the ground or eyes on the ground for security of other follow-on forces to come in and link up with you to now conduct some offensive operations within the enemy territory. You can't just come in and learn helicopter forces blindly among the enemy forces or within the enemy territory. So that operation can only be done, or that military operation, as we call it, can only be done by very highly trained forces that are sneaky, deadly, ready to fight and sustain some, uh, you know, uh, length of fighting if things were to go wrong until other forces come in to reinforce and or to, you know, um, get you out of uh, the mark and mud of, of fighting. So mine was very successful. I led forces in. We walked for about 10 kilometers through the night, climbing serious, treacherous mountain cliffs and all, and got my forces safely to my objective, which was you know properly secured. Forces landed very well, and the operations uh, started you know in high gear uh, the following morning, as it was hoped and it and it was planned. Uh, that's gonna be very well captured in my book, you know, the the making of a super soldier. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really proud of, you know, all the exploits. I was in Elgon, a successful operation. I was in Somalia. But now this particular one I'm talking about is, you know, when you are absolutely free, and I'm thinking we are going back to continuation training with the special forces and all. And then uh, the locals who are predominantly Samburus uh, in that area, you know, called, called on us some, you know, APs. Those are APs, are contingent of forces, APs and I think some GSUs that they had thought we were militia training in the local area. So these people come in and ambush us, uh, you know, in the wee hours of the morning at, at uh, 5.45ish, you know, the, the, the sun had not come up and I hear voices. And I'm thinking this could just be some make-believe exercise that are put together by our guys because we're training alongside the, the special forces from the UK. And I thought in my heart of hearts that um, this is some kind of exercise. So I pop out of my, you know, place where I was in the patrol base and I go out to check. So I walk forward, I, you know, crawl, walk forward, half walk, half crawl to go check and review what's going on. Because that's the common practice. You go to go listen now, check out if an enemy that's approaching. 
and work out a plan as a commander. Uh, little did I know that these were basically people who genuinely, uh, you know, believed that, uh, you know, after being informed by the militia, the locals that we were, they suspected we were militia and some kind of foreign force training in the local area or doing some activity in the local area. So they came and walked right into into my patrol harbor. And before I could tell them and identify ourselves, someone opened fire on me. And I honestly don't know how someone missed me, my big frame uh, at you know, 10 meters. Uh, so that was f- fairly much a very lucky escape for me. Uh, and that was the area. So a burst of AK-47 and uh, they, 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 they leapfrogged back and they started uh, hurling even, you know, um, mortars at us they you know it was it was crazy it was uh the you know the the worst that we ever had uh and the most um you know unfortunate that we also had because of that the the, the the wrong call by the locals and of course the very poor judgment by those uh administration police and the gsus who came looking for us because they could have believed uh, had we had i had live ammo in my gun but i didn't shoot back at these people if i did i'd have basically killed, uh, if not all of them, but majority of them, I didn't. Um, a number of my men who were pinned down in my patrol harbor had blank ammunition in their weapon system, so they couldn't fire back. If anything, if they did, uh, they actually did much later, just warned this, we were like, you know, we are the army. They shouted, special forces. So they answered back with blank uh, ammo. You know, these people could not still listen. They were like, you come and you need muamuke, but you can't muka when guys are, it's a barrage of fire. So chains were on the deck and people were trying to dig small holes with their chains and eyelashes, man. It's crazy when rounds start flying over your head and you are very desperate and you don't have so much to do. Um, so that, that I have to say was the hairiest in, 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 in my life, not, not the actual war zone or battlefield stuff, because that for me, you know, I prepared for the business you're in the right frame of mind. But for me, that was the scariest because, you know, I dropped my guard and no, I knew back in the country, really safe. You're going on in trainings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even as you wind up, can we talk a bit about um, mental health in terms of, I know a lot of things you guys have seen in the military as you've gone yeah. for all this, but in all these battlefields is very traumatic. Yeah. And you realize some of the soldiers come back with the 1,000-yard stare and a lot of them suffer from PTSD. So please yeah. touch a bit on that, on how first some of them cope with it mm-hmm. if you have ever experienced uh, ptsd and what mm-hmm. it all entails um uh, ptsd is just among other mental illnesses that we have and that we get exposed to uh, uh ptsd means post-traumatic stress disorder and it's more apparent yes as you say among the combatants or people fighting forces so be it um, army the kdf be it uh, the police as well, be it even members of the, you know, firefighting brigades, um, you know, they're exposed to so much. I personally, I was humbled when the other day I trained alongside firefighters and very experienced men who are charged with the recovery of all forms. You know, it's the, you'd be surprised these people are not just um, doing uh, beats and pieces and scraps of uh, you know, uh, firefighting and, 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 you know, sprinkling water, like you know, a pee on 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 burning houses and things like that. This is beyond, well beyond that. These are the guys who recover dead bodies from, you know, airplane crashes to seriously gory accidents that happen and leave mangled wreckages of uh, vehicles or things like that. And they have to get people out of those traps. Um, I had individuals, the owner to operate among 
uh, other you know individuals that were pretty much took play, took part in the recoveries of the Ufundi cooperative you know during the 98 bombing uh, and also in the Douala, you know, plane crashes and across the borders. And trust me, those are people that also deserve a lot of uh, uh, mental health programs to help them recover out of post-traumatic, you know, um, instances or episodes or circumstances for that matter. Uh, so a, a brother of mine now is, is called, um, you know, Mr. Peter Ngugi. Mze is retired from the Nairobi, you know, fired brigade, but a solid individual. So back to your story. Uh, PTSD is just one, one, one of them. There's, of course, the adjustment uh, disorder, ASD, adjustment stress uh, disorder. There's the terminal brain, um, you know, uh, TBI uh, is one of them. Um, I don't know if I'm getting it all right, but um, it's not terminal brain injury. It's, it's something traumatic, traumatic brain injury. So there's, there's the TBI, there's the ASD adjustment disorder, uh, acute stress disorder. Then there's the AD adjustment disorder. Then, of course, we have the PTSD, that's the post-traumatic stress disorder. So these four are among the most serious mental health, uh, with, especially now in our business combatants, because you get to see a lot. Uh, part of the training it transforms you and adjusts you adequately to become a soldier, but it doesn't step you down. And anything that you get to experience, you know, you see death, you take lives, you get shot, or things like that, or even in training, you see quite a lot. I mean, seeing someone today, Billy, and, and you're together and you're laughing and you're telling half-hearted jokes to keep uh, going, even in the battlefield. And then the next, this guy is is minced meat, or the next, he's blown into pieces, or next, um, it's you who's trying to piece together what used to be their body, and, and some of it is outside their real system. It, it's crazy. It's not going to leave your mental wiring the same, Okay. You're exposed mm -hmm. to this over and over. You're not going to be left the same. You are detached from your family for, for the longest. You're not going to be left the same. Uh, I don't know if you're going to picnic just in the jungle or something, if you love camping, just jungle sounds and stuff. You call it, you know, the jungle, uh, the, the psychology of even living in the jungle. You know, you get a bit of pressure. It's more like being kept in the dark. There's several fears that people have. But the jungle itself comes with a fair share of, you know, mental kind of distress. And, and then you can imagine if you're in that jungle, like in our case, you're in Mount Elgon, you're in the jungle, and you're not going in for a picnic, you know, you are living in a very harsh environment, and you're in there, and you know, people are out there looking to kill you and shoot you. They've shot several people, they killed policemen, they killed even GSUs for the country to now send in the parachute regiment, you know, led... Uh, that led the invasion in there, uh, among other people like our special forces. So these are these were not jokers. So you're not gonna go in there to invite them out of out of hiding and sing some you know songs or lullaby to basically soothe them into handing out their weapons to you guys and then you call it a day. Okay. So all these things don't leave you the same. So in my case, yes, after so much exposure, uh, I suffered from PTSD. Yeah. So mental illnesses. Uh, can happen to even the strongest. You know, your brain is not going to obey the fact that your body is absolutely filled, fit, and you're, you know, a barrel-chested guy, eight feet tall, and you wear a size 50 shoe, okay? Your mind is still going to be fashioning itself to interpret what's happening to it, absorb what's happening in the environment, and try to relate. And sometimes when trying to relate and trying to cope may change your mental wiring in profound ways, and that's why you have all this mental uh, challenges okay so the only way to address yourself to those things is to you know have a lot of self-awareness that fine uh, if, if if like even in a car you know if you buy a car today it's in top tip uh, performance and shape 
it's going to start to wear out and call for service at a certain point in time. And that's why it's actually known. So why not be the people who can identify that? At this point in time, you Saudi, you got in a tower since Zuri. So hey, it needs to be fixed, okay? You know, someone else is going to identify that, you know, something could be wrong with you and be vulnerable enough to accept that something could be wrong. So the infrastructure needs to be there. The self-awareness is a big thing. And of course, the feeling of vulnerability that, you know, things can still happen to me, have a tough, strong, macho I am, you know. And so it's a combination of so many things uh, in this environment that um, can help us to address ourselves to mental illnesses. And it's not just the combatants, you know, sadly so. We've seen individuals that are working in banks, you know, high stress jobs, working in banks. We saw an individual jump from, you know, the other day from uh, the 17th floor or something. Uh, and just died. Uh, we don't. We may not know the story, but there are high stress jobs that are pushed people to that. There's individuals that are taking their own lives out there, out of situations that they think have taken them to the brick wall. Uh, in their families, you know, you know, just spousal matters, and people think, hey, to this end, I don't deserve to leave. Uh, it's manageable. So. All these things, if we open those vows for communication, if we agreed to be vulnerable, if we are agreed to have you know, an infrastructure in this nation that can pretty much shake a finger at the coastal factors and say, hey, can we, sorry, can we address ourselves to you know, addressing the impact of mental illnesses or mental health challenges of sorts that are pretty much impacting this nation in great ways? We are mental beings. So if we are just counting bodies and we are saying we are 50 million uh, of us, trust me, the productivity of the 50 million or the, for the product, those in the productive age may be uh, as good as, uh, you know, um, an eighth of the total numbers of those existing with this, this nation as citizens. If our mental health or our mental, you know, um, health, yeah, for that matter is compromised in great ways. So that is that is that's the grave danger that we face if we don't address ourselves to the you know to the correctness um of, of addressing the you know mental health you know faculties that uh, really define who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'll add anything to that as as you said first the mental health with your mental health affects every other aspect of your life. So I think that is something we need to look very into. And I love that we're having these conversations where we're speaking about mental health more openly. And so definitely people are coming out more and being more free with the things they're struggling with. True. So I think the listeners will tweet at us at the Bushan pod and follow us on the Good, the Bad and the Bushan on Instagram and tell us what are their thoughts on everything we discussed in this episode, as well as we'll be waiting, Byron, for your book to drop in February. Yes. So you have some willing buyers right here. Ah, Sante, thank you so much. And those willing buyers uh, can feel absolutely free to engage me on my socials. That's at Byron Adera, you know, a blog, Byron Adera. That's the YouTube channel as well. And the interaction can go all the way into the deep trenches of uh, Facebook. Um, I come through as uh, Adera B. Panther. Uh, interestingly, my, my good friend, Billy, uh, guys gave me that. that. That's the name that I earned in Somalia in 2011, uh, Black Panther, uh, 2010, because 2011. Um, uh, the, I think my friends, the special forces, they first called me Big Fish. So if you've got a bit of fish going, it's it's it's, it's a reference to me. Uh, mm-hmm. But Black Panther, I guess because of, um, I think I, I, I lived out of my big frame, uh, big brains, uh, deadly sneakiness. Yeah, so they thought <laughs> of names but Black Panther fits. <laughs> hey, what do you see? What do you see? 
Yeah, I'm humble enough, man. I'm, it's uh, blame blame it on the guys. Blame it on the guys. <laughs> <laughs> the folks have a lovely week ahead and cheers.